Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 18 through 25. Uh, Please follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen behind me as we read the word of the Lord. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased, for his righteousness' sake, to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In those ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take to to heart. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are your people. Be present with us this morning. Lord, I ask the spirit that lives in us to ignite us that we would experience you and know you and love you and glorify you. Amen. When you think about God, where do you envision him? When you're mowing the lawn, where is he? When you're cooking dinner or watching TV, where is God to you? When you're praying, to him. Where do you envision him? When you're sitting right now in that chair, where is he to you? When you stumble again in ongoing sin, where is he to you? When you cry out to him from your heartache, where do you envision him? As you consider these life situations, is he near to you or distant to you? When is he near to you, and when does he seem distant to you? Maybe if you're honest, maybe in these circumstances you don't even consider him much. You might also be sitting there, yeah, 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 I know the Bible answer to it is he's near to us. Yeah, I know that, I believe that, but my question to you is, do you sense him near to you? Do you experience him? Do you experience his presence? Do you sense him constantly engaged with you? This is what Isaiah 43, 1 through 7 is all about. My hope today is to magnify the Lord and that you will know, not not just know him, but you will see him and experience him. Experience how Yahweh, the Holy One, is not just near, but comes to you and is with you and saves you to be glorified through you. You see in your gathering guide or your sermon notes, the title, I titled this sermon, Yahweh is near to save. 
Main point, the Lord our God is a majestic, gracious God who is with his children and saves his children from their perils and sin. And I made an addition to it, to his glory. So you can add that in. But before we get into Isaiah 43, let me give a little context of where Isaiah 43 sits in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 39 can be summarized as this, the holiness of God. God is speaking through Isaiah. He's a prophet for, for God to the people, to Israel, pre-exile into Babylon. And, God, and it's all about, chapter 1 through 39 is all about God's righteous judgment of Israel for their constant rebellion and sin. Chapter 40 through 66 can be summarized as the glory of God, God's holiness on display. God is speaking through Isaiah about Israel in exile and post-exile from Babylon. So in these 26 chapters, the second half, Yahweh is constantly reminding Israel that they are deaf, blind, and rebellious people. But he is faithful and gracious to save his children. So look at Isaiah 43, 1 through 7 with me as I, as I read it. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for you. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Look at verse 1. I want you to notice the first two words here, but now. But now is the connection. It's a conjunction. It's connecting what has come before it to what now is about to happen. And so in verse 42, 18 through 25, is what the scripture reading that John gave us, we see what comes before it. Israel, or Isaiah is calling Israel blind people, deaf people, rebellious people against the Lord. And because of their rebellion, they're in exile by the hand of God. And as you see in verse 25 here, they're actually under his fire. They're being, the flames are all around them. But now, we are about to see the Lord's intimate presence and compassionate care towards his children, towards his rebellious children. So look at verse 1 again. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he, for, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. So this is my first point on your gathering guide, your notes. Yahweh sees and speaks to his children. This is verse 1. So notice he says, he who created you, O Jacob. In the NASB, it says, your creator, 
O Jacob. And this is true. Yahweh is the creator of the whole universe of all things. But here, he is speaking specifically about Jacob as an individual and the nation that comes from Jacob. He, he created Jacob uniquely and specifically and is nothing of Jacob's doing. That's what it means to create. Create something out of nothing. And so he created Jacob and he loved Jacob. Remember the story in Jacob's birth story in Genesis? He says, God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. This was predestined by God before Jacob was born. Just like you and I, the Lord has created us specifically, uniquely. He's created you and he's designed you for a purpose and it's embedded in you. Sit with that for a moment. Your creator created you. Before the foundations of the world, he knew you. He knew every molecule, every cell of you. He knew how tall you'd be. He knew if your back would be curved. He knew what color hair. He knew the fingerprints on your fingers. He, knew, he knows everything about you. He knows more about you than you know about your own self. But then look, Yahweh takes his creation and forms it. He who formed you, O Israel. To form is what potters do after, or after they, the clay is created. They take clay, they form it, shape it. They make it into what they want it to be. And what it, the purpose of the clay is. I want you to notice God created Jacob and then formed him into Israel. Notice the slight nuance here. He's created him, and then he forms him. This is not a one-time act. This is an ongoing act of the Lord with Israel. He is constantly forming and shaping and working Israel into who he wants them to be. Okay, as I mentioned, I'm kind of talking about him as an individual here, Jacob, which is what this passage alludes to. But as you and I know, as you read the Old Testament, the nation of Israel comes out of Jacob. And so he's talking about the whole nation of Israel here. Yahweh has created Jacob and formed him, the nation of Israel, through their circumstances. One commentator says this about the nation of Israel being created and formed. So the Lord determined to have a people for his very own, brought them into being and shaped them on the will of circumstances. Potters use wills to form the clay in the way they want. And we'll see in a minute here that his creation and his forming is why Yahweh can say, you are mine. But before we move on, what I want us to see here, and I don't want you to miss this, and it's easy to miss, yeah, I know the Lord created me, yes, he forms me, but I really want us to take in the idea of this, the potter how intimate he is with the clay. He forms the clay with extreme amount of engagement and intensity, connection and involvement, presence and purpose and vision. He's working the clay with his hands. He's pressing hard sometimes. He's gentle and soft sometimes. He discards pieces that are unnecessary and not beneficial to the overall purpose he uses water and heat 
to manipulate the clay in the way he needs to. His hands are intertwined with the clay. The clay is on his hands, and his imprint is on his creation. We must see and hear how close Yahweh, your God, is to you. Do you engage him like this? Do you engage him as he is right here, right now, with you? And let me be more specific. As a believer, as he is in you, do you engage him as he is in you? Again, being a child of him, Yahweh is intimately engaged with you and forming you. You cannot miss that. Now let's look at what he actually says to Israel. It says, thus says Yahweh. So when you see in the scriptures, the Lord in all caps, that's, for, that's the I am who I am. It's Yahweh there. You'll see it in other places. It's spelled with lower caps. And that's just referencing the Lord. It says, Thus says Yahweh, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Yahweh says, fear not. Now, if you're like me, the question is, how does people of Israel who have been drug off into captivity and being crushed not fear? I'm fearful of a lot more things than that. But this is a command. This is imperative. Do not fear. And the little word for is a purpose statement. It says, because I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. So let's look at these two reasons. It says, I have redeemed you. The verb redeemed here is, a, uh, is in the perfect tense. That means the action is complete. It has happened and will remain happening. Yahweh is declaring that he has redeemed Israel and they will remain redeemed. Remember when Yahweh was redeemed? Sorry, remember when Yahweh redeemed Israel back in the Exodus? He redeemed them out of Egypt. Egypt was destroyed through the waters, so Israel would not be destroyed and would be set free. The idea of redeem here also means it means to be delivered, to be rescued. We should have in our minds the, the idea of kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer is a relative, the closest relative, to save his people, his kin, his next of kin. The Lord is Yah, the Lord is Israel's kins, kinsman redeemer. Yahweh, the Lord your God, their God. Their creator, their father, is Israel's next of kin. And he delivers Israel from Egypt. Exodus 6.6 6 says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so we've seen Israel's past redemption is in view here to them. And it's certainty that the Lord will continue to redeem, redeem them. And that's how they cannot fear. 
It helps prevent not, not fearing. Yet he adds another one. It says, and now, he says, I have called you by name. Another reason for not fearing. This isn't like, hey, Jeff. Hey, Lily. It's not like I'm just calling your name. That's not what this means. This is a name. This is a naming. It's an ownership language. It's to call out from one family to another. To be named is to be set apart. Yahweh called and named Israel. He set them apart. And Genesis 32, 28 says, Then he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob was given a new name and a new heart with the encounter with the living God. His new name is Israel, which means striven with God. So in the Old Testament, names are super important. They spoke to the heart of a person, the character of a person. It wasn't just a name to just name somebody. So Jacob had a heart of a deceiver. That's what Jacob means. And now is a prince of God because he wrestled with God and prevailed. I want you to see how intimate this exchange is here. This idea of naming to be called unto, unto the Lord. Think about it. Two men, this is what happened. Jacob and the Lord wrestling on the side of the Jabbok. Think how intimate that is. The Lord, your God, engages Jacob and wrestles all night long with him. Talk about being handsy. Talk about being informed, informing, and engaging. And out of that, Jacob has a new name, a new purpose, a new heart, and the Lord blesses him. And then Yahweh says, you are mine. This, again, is ownership language. When you create something, you own it. It's yours. When you redeem something, you purchase something, you own it. When you name something that's yours, it's yours. You claim it as yours. I think you'd understand this. We name our children, right? We all have, give them names and reference them as ours. Hannah, my daughter. Abigail, my daughter. Maylee, my daughter. So we, they are ours in the naming. Okay, you might be thinking, I don't know where you're at, but you might be thinking, I don't want to be owned. I don't want to, I don't, I want to be free. I don't want to be owned by anybody. I don't want any person to own me. I don't want anything to own me. I don't want anyone to be bound to anybody. I want to live the American dream, independence from anything. Friends, let me be clear here. We are always being bound to something. We are being owned constantly. It's just a matter of to what. And Matthew 6.24 tells us there's only two options. It's God, Yahweh, or anything other. So we must consider this today. Who is your master? That's what Matthew 6.24 says. We serve two masters. Who's your master? Who owns you? Does your work? Is it your work? Is it the applause of others? 
Is it your cell phone? Is it the health of your kids? Simply, is it you and your own desires? You might be asking, as we look back at the passage here, how does being called or owned keep us from fearing? Well, think about it. When you own something, when you have it and you call it yours, what do we typically do with it? Take care of it. We protect it. We want it to remain with us, especially if it's a valuable possession to us. We want to make sure that it stays there and it is with us. This is how God sees you. But you are not a possession. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. He cherishes and cares for all who he creates and owns. Matthew 6 says, Jesus says, His Father cares and provides for the birds and the flowers of the field. Those are his creation. But are you not more valuable to your Father than they? Jesus also says about his Father's children, None shall pluck them out of my, hand, my Father's hand. Paul says in Philippians 3, which we'll get to in this series when we return to it next week, we won't get to Philippians 3, but later in the series. Philippians 3, it says, Paul says, I'm able to press on, continue to endure, because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own, and he will keep me to the end. So when we are called, redeemed, and owned by God, we are safe, secure, and we have no reason to fear. So I hope, I, I hope you're seeing and I hope you're impacted how much Yahweh sees you and knows you and cares about you. If not, just wait. Because we're about to see how Israel, what Israel is saved from, how Israel is saved, and how Yahweh saves his children. So this is point number two. Yahweh saves his children, verses 2 through 4. So what, what, are, what does he save us from? Look at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. The people of Israel would be highly aware of the water-fire motif here. They were remembering the places that they have been in the midst of water and amidst of fire. They would be remembering being saved from Egypt through the Red Sea and through the Jordan River. And they'd be realizing that the Lord, their God, is with them in those places, in the waters. They'd also be aware that they're saved from fire, from persecution. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were placed in the fiery fires, fiery furnace, and not being harmed because God was with them. But to put it simply here, the water and the fire just simply means troubles and perils of life, immense difficulties, persecutions in life, anything that would overwhelm you. 
But also it's, it's important to note that in the scripture, when these two are paired together, water and fire, it means total destruction. And what does the scripture tell us? What ultimately causes our total destruction is sin. And so Yahweh saves Israel from their afflictions and perils of their life, their captivity. He saves them from them, but he also saves them from their total destruction because of their sin. He's a gracious and merciful God that saves us out of total destruction, out of our rebellion, out of our sin. Now look back at verse 2 here. I really want you to notice this. At the beginning of each sentence, it says, we see the words, when you. It is not if you pass through, it is when you pass through the waters and fire, I will be with you. He's telling us this will happen. The perils and troubles and difficulties of life will happen. It has happened to Israel, it is currently happening to Israel, and it will continue to happen. And the only way for Israel, you and me, children of God, to not be afraid and to survive the scorching circumstances of life is for us to depend solely on him who promises to be with you in your afflictions, in your troubles. And he will bring you through. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. There it is. There is the nearness of God. Do you see it? I will be with you. It is a promise to you that he will be with you. I, 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 as I sat with this, it's amazing to think the creator of the universe, your creator, my creator, the holy of holies, the sovereign ruler of all things is with us, is with his people in every aspect of life, but especially in afflictions. This, there's absolutely no distance here. Yahweh is a God that is not distant. He sees his children. He knows you. He sees you, and he comes to you. He's intimately present with you. And we see him with Israel, and they are able not to fear, and they're able not to be overwhelmed, and they're able to not be persecuted because of him. Again, he is with you right now. And he will bring you through whatever you're going through. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. Can't go around it. But we must go through it. He, we must be in it, and he is in it with us. Friends, we can't miss this promise. Yahweh, your creator, our father, our redeemer, our savior, sees you and knows you and knows what you're going through. And he is in it with you. He is in your heartache and loss of a loved one. He is in the times that you're overwhelmed with anxiety. He's in your tough work situation. He's in it with you when you're belittled or slandered. He is with you when you're in despair and in danger. He's with you when cancer is consuming your body. 
He is with you when you're alone and not connected to anyone. Kids, He is with you when you're at bed at night and you're scared of the dark. He is the light in the darkness. He is with us. And so the point of application here is the waters and fire of your life, when you're in those, what do you do? Do you attempt to get rid of the fire and the water yourself? Do you try to get out of it? Do you try, or try to create or Google coping skills to, get, to deal with it? Just to cope with it? Maybe you pray, and that's a great thing. But what are your prayers about? Having the Lord get you out of it? Having Him take it away? To have Him give you coping skills to do whatever you can to not feel it? I would argue and have you consider this morning that Lord your God is more concerned about you experiencing Him in your perils than Him getting rid of it. He could stand off from a distance and just remove and pluck out every single trial and difficulty that you have. He could do that. That would be amazing. But if this was the case, we would miss out on experiencing the fullness of who He is. And He would not be receiving the full glory that He deserves. He would just be a deity that stands off and with a wand and wields it and says, bippity boppity boo, let it be gone. This is not Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord our God, comes to us and is intimately engaged with us, with his children, so that we would experience the fullness of him and to, for him to receive full glory in saving us from and in our troubles. As a body, I believe this is one of the best ways we care well for one another. It's the way we love one another. It is to get into the depths, the suffering, the hardship of one another versus trying to get people out of it or to fix it for them. Can you just sit with them can you be with them? God is the only one that can get us out. This is what Christ does for us. He comes to us in our sin. Then he alone saves us from our sins. He doesn't come to us and give us a coping skill. He doesn't come to, get to us and, and say, take care of it yourself and then come to me stands off to the side and removes it from us. No, he gives himself to us. He dwells in us and promises to remain with us in it, in our waters, and in our fires. And he gives us his water and his fire to purify us. And one day, he'll remove all our sins and we will be holy as he is holy. So let's ask the Lord, practically, pray to him to reveal more of himself to us in our trials and troubles. Ask him to be more intimately present with you and that for you to experience him in those moments. 
for his glory and for your joy. Now let's look at verse 3 through 4. The Lord wants to be crystal clear who saves and then how he saves and why he saves. Verse 3 through 4. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you and people in exchange for your life. So who saves? It's clear. Yahweh is the one who saves. This is the pinnacle of the passage here. Yahweh, your Savior, is the pinnacle, the climax of the scriptures and of your life. Because of who the Lord is, he saves. And there's three names here we see. And briefly talk about those. I am the Lord your God. This is the covenantal name for him, I am. Exodus 3, 14 through 16 tells us Yahweh is the everlasting God. He's never changing. He is forever committed to his children. This also is a statement of relationship. See, it says, your God. He's in relationship with you. Israel is God's. If you're a child of him, you are God's. And he claims them as his own, even in the midst of their ongoing sin. Second name we see here is the Holy One of Israel. This is Isaiah's emphasis of the whole book. Yahweh being the Holy One means he is set apart. He is pure. He's the Holy of Holies, the purest of the pure. His judgment and salvation is from his holiness. Third name you see here says, your Savior. Yahweh is salvation. He's the one who provides pure grace to his people, even though they rebel against him. Isaiah 59, 20 says, A Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Judah who turn from transgressions, and says the Lord. God's salvation comes to us in the midst of our sin, and we're called to turn away from it, which means to repent and turn to God to be saved. So let's look at how does Yahweh save. He saves by ransom and by a great exchange. So look at verse 3, what I call 3b. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush, which is Ethiopia, and Seba in exchange for you. And then look at verse 4b, second half of 4. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Again, this is language of purchase. The Lord gives Egypt and the peoples, men, for the return of his children. To save his people from slavery in Egypt, the Lord said he would kill the firstborn in Egypt unless they killed a lamb without blemish, painted the blood on the, above the door and on the doorpost. And, what we, and the angel of death would pass over it. You see, the Lord graciously told Israel what they need to do to be saved. He told them to paint the blood on the doorpost. And they had to do this in faith. Israel and Egypt were both going to receive this consequence, this plague. But God in his graciousness and his love for his own people provided a way out. He provided a substitute for them. 
the unblemished lamb. And Yahweh exchanged Egypt for Israel and purchased them by the blood of the lamb. Now this great exchange is how the Lord saves us. The, Lord, the New Testament tells us Christ, being fully God and fully man, came to us and became our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed on the cross, his blood shed. And just like Israel, whoever has faith in God's provision for salvation, which for us is Christ, will be saved. God exchanged his own perfect son, his one and only son, for you and for me to be free from enslavement to sin and death. First Peter 1, 18 through 19 tells us, We are not ransomed, we are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with, precious blo- with the pre- precious blood of Christ, like that of the lamb without blemish or spot. This is why God can say to us, when I see Christ's blood, when I see Christ in you, I'll pass over you. So the question before us this morning is, are you covered by the blood? Let me be more specific. Christ's blood has been supplied for you, but has it been applied to you? John Calvin once noted that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for for the salvation of the human race will remain useless and of no value for us. You must look upon Christ in his pierced hands, broken body, shed blood for you, and embrace him by faith. Faith, too, faith also is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man should boast. So if you're here today, you might be saying, I don't believe this. Yeah, I've come to church, I've heard this, I know this, but I still don't believe it. I would encourage you this morning to cry out to him and to be honest with him that you don't have faith. You cannot create that on your own self, but ask him to give you faith to believe in his son. Tell him that you want to know him as he knows you. Tell him to come to you and to save you. He loves you and loves to save those who he calls his children, those who he calls by name. Look at verse 4 here. Yahweh tells us clearly and simply why he saves his children. Because you are precious in his sight. Because you're honored. Because he loves you. Don't miss the preciousness in his sight. Notice, for him to consider you precious, he has to see you and know you. Honored, you're set apart for him. And how amazing is it that the Lord loves you? Don't miss this. He loves you so much that he gave his own son for you. I love you. I'm an elder here. I'm an under-shepherd to care for you. I pray for you. I want to serve you. As much as I love you, 
I would never give my daughter for you. Absolutely not. But Jesus, or Lord Yahweh, gave his own son for you. Think about that for a moment. Think of how high a price this is that God sacrificed his son for you, his perfect son for you, for us, for me, rebellious sinners. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Now to point three here. Yahweh shows his glory through his children. It's verse five through seven. So we've seen that Yahweh our Savior is the pinnacle of the passage. And Yahweh being our salvation, providing salvation through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is the pinnacle of his glory. And that's what we'll see here, is that Yahweh shows his glory through his children. This will bring us to a close, but let me read verse 5 through 7 here. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. From the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I want you to notice first here that Yahweh repeats, do not fear. How easy is it for us to forget? How quickly is it easy, easy for us to forget? forget a command by the Lord. But he reminds Yahweh here, he reminds Israel here that they should not fear because I am with you. He is with us. He is with them. Notice that this is a present, this is a present speaking to, I am with you. Verse one was future oriented. I will be with you. But he is here with us right now. Again, our safety should not be placed in anything other than the presence of the Lord. Love casts out all fear. God, who loves us, who is love, says that he loves you. Therefore, rest in his arms. Rest in the arms of your Savior. And as Arch mentioned last week, this is a promise and a command that will not be stopped. As Arch mentioned that no adversity, and here no Worldwide scattering of God's people will stop him from loving his children and bringing them into the promised land. That's what we see here. He will bring, he will gather his people from the east, west, north, and south and set them free. Now this is a reference to all four corners of the world that he will gather from. So this isn't about from Babylon because Babylon's not the four corners. But this is talking about the great gathering at the end when Jesus returns to earth from all the four corners. He will gather his children by, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Again, this is a promise of the Lord, and it will happen. He will do it, and it cannot be stopped. It can, he cannot be thwarted. Look at verse 6 and 7, how he gathers. He says, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Yahweh commands the nations to set his people free. 
He has, he has supreme authority to speak, and it comes to fruition. We see this in creation, let there be light, and there was light. We see it as he speaks to the dead body of Lazarus, get up, and he got up. He has supreme authority, and he will gather his, his people and bring them home. He will do it. But notice in verse 7 here, he says, bring to, my, to me my sons and my daughters. This is not all who have been scattered, but everyone who is called by his name. Notice that. By my name. He will gather all who have been created by him for his glory. He will gather all who, form, who he formed and made so another way of saying this, Yahweh will gather all his children he created, formed, made, and called by his name for his glory. His glory is the purpose of creation. His purpose, his glory is the purpose of redemption. His glory is the purpose of gathering his children together. And therefore, that is our purpose here if you're a child of him. Your purpose is... Youth, if you want to know your purpose, is to glorify God. That is our purpose. He's glorified in our salvation. And church, as, he, as we gather here together as saints, we are glorifying him as well. This gathering is so important because us as saints coming together, individually glorifying him and glorifying him corporately brings him glory. Just real quick, to be clear, we do not add to his glory. He is sufficient in himself. We cannot do anything to provide addition to his glory. But we simply display his glory as Christ is in us. As individuals and as a gathered body. So if you're a child of God, called by him, set apart for him, then your purpose in this life and the next is to glorify him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Are you glorifying God in your marriage? Are you glorifying God in your school studies, your conversation, your Instagram scrolling, drinking water, eating food? Are you glorifying God in all your actions and attitudes? As I end, I want you to notice one last thing. Look who's providing everything here. It is nothing of Israel's doing, and it is nothing of our doing. It is God who's doing all the work. He is creating. He is forming, redeeming, calling, owning, saving, exchanging, loving, bringing, gathering, and glorifying. Yahweh is a gracious God who comes to us and is with us, loves us, and saves us for his glory, for our freedom, rest, and joy. Yahweh is near to you. Yahweh is near to save his children. Let us, let us pray. Oh, gracious Yahweh, the Lord of lords, holy of holies, creator, forming us, intimately connected to us, knows us,
We thank you, Lord, that you know us. You know us as sinful, rebellious people, and yet you love your creation, and you love those who are called to you. Lord, I pray that we would glorify you this morning and with our lives. Lord, that we would not seek to save ourselves, but seek you for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.